Convicted and Convinced, a message from God's Word for you. And now, here's Dr. Lloyd Willis with today's lesson. Good morning, Sabbath School. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we need the guidance of your Spirit in our study. Please bless us and be present with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Bereshith bara Elohim, et hashamayim wa'et ha'aretz, wa'aretz ayata tohu wa'vohu, wa'choshek el penei tohum, wa'ruach Elohim, merakefeth el penei ha'mayim. They're the first two verses of Genesis 1. And to a person who understands them, it's exciting, it's beautiful, it's simple. It's so delightful to read and to hear and to think back. Last week we uh, talked about the beautiful and dignified account in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, it is beautiful. It uh, gives us the account of the origin of all things, of the origin of the Sabbath, of the origin of marriage. Have you ever thought that the first full day that Adam and Eve had together was a Sabbath. What a beautiful Sabbath it must have been. But today in the lesson, we're looking also at some of these rival accounts. Let's, let's just call them that for the time being. Because a story or, or an explanation is popular doesn't make it true. And today we're looking at several of these popular but false stories or assumptions about the Bible. We wish to interpret the Bible correctly. That's what the whole quarter is dealing with. So we deny these assumptions. The first one is that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. And uh, actually, the the Bible hardly mentions the shape of the earth. Uh, In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, and also in chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, it speaks in a prophetic context about the four corners of the earth. But what does that mean? It would appear as though it's simply saying at the four points of the compass, and we do that and refer to things that way today too. In the uh, quarterly on page 73, it uh, brings this out. John, the author of these texts, is writing end-time prophecy, describing the four angels of heaven standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. He repeated the word four three times to tie the angels to the four compass points. That that seems to be very logical to me. But it has been assumed that because the Bible uses such terminology, the earth was thought of as being flat. And of course it was for many people, but the Bible does not teach that. In Job 26 and verses 7 to 10, it's using the poetic language of this man of God who lived in the desert. And uh, in verse 7, it says, Job 26, verse 7, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters. 
for a boundary between light and darkness. Uh, in some versions, it, it sounds as though it's saying the circle of the earth, as though the earth is round. And it's quite possible that was in the mind of the writer, but it's a bit hard to prove that that's exactly what he had in mind. On the other hand, a person of intelligence who looked around him at the world, especially if he went to the sea and sees a ship going over the horizon or looks at a lunar eclipse and sees the shape of the, of the earth reflected on the surface of the moon, could easily be aware of the fact that the earth was round. But the Bible doesn't really teach the exact uh, shape of the earth. There's no clear statement, at least. We also use the language of appearance when we say the sun sets. The sun doesn't really set, but from our point of view, it is setting, appearing to go over the horizon. So uh, the Bible doesn't really teach that the earth is flat. Let's go to the second one. The stories of Genesis, and there's the flood story and creation story, and others too, are supposed to be borrowed from the ancient Near Eastern literature. That is, that, uh, that Moses inherited these stories and adapted them. Well, they read so beautifully, so simply, so, so organized in the way that we have them, it's hard to visualize that as coming out of the chaotic stories, but let's just briefly review what they contain. In one, we call it Enuma Elish, because that means when above, it's talking about the, the gods and their, their uh, life together and so forth. Um, it goes on to speak about uh, Apsu and Tiamat. Now, these accounts are in various languages, particularly uh, Babylonian and uh, Akkadian and Assyrian, and they occur in, uh, in cuneiform uh, script on many tablets. Here, here is one that is a tablet with cuneiform on it that gives the story of the flood in uh, part of the story in a tablet that was found in Megiddo in Israel. And so these stories were very widely circulated and it's been thought that's the origin. That's where Moses got the ideas from. Apsu and Tiamat were the, the god parents, father and mother god. Uh, Apsu was thought of as, as fresh water and Tiamat as salt water. And they had lots of offspring that uh, uh, fought among themselves and accused one another and so forth, but they were troublesome. And so Apsu decided that he would, he would do away with them all. But the god of wisdom, Ea, heard about this and uh, was very upset. And so he uh, begat Marduk, and that's actually the chief point in the story, the origin of Marduk, who is the chief god of Babylon. And Marduk, <clears throat> who's the hero of the story, uh, is from that time on very prominent. Ea killed Apsu, and Tiamat was very angry. Let me just read the description of the battle that took place then between Tiamat and uh, Marduk. It says how that uh, Marduk uh, sent the evil wind following after. He let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to devour him, he drove in the evil wind. 
so that she could not close her lips. As the raging winds filled her belly, her belly was distended and she opened her mouth wide and he shot off an arrow. It tore into her belly. It cut through her vitals. It pierced her heart. When he had subdued her, he destroyed her life. He cast down her carcass and stood upon it. That's supposed to be a part of this creation story. There's not much creation in it. Marduk is is elevated to supreme God because of the fact that he destroyed a garment and then created it again, supposedly from nothing. That's why he's so great in the story. But uh, it's uh, it's a pretty weak sort of a story if you have to draw the story of Genesis out of something of that nature. So uh, Tiamut is her carcass is split in two. Half of it is used to create the sky and half of it to create the, the earth. And uh, then uh, he does supposedly create the heavenly bodies. And then it comes to man. And from the, uh, the blood of Kingu, who was the general or champion of uh, Tiamat, uh, he creates man. Man is made from the blood of a god. Well, that's not very much like the Bible account, if you really think about it. In a variant account, uh, man is created by clay mixed with the blood of a god. So it's the same story, but varied a little bit. So there are some similarities. The story starts out with a watery chaos. And then the order, firmament, and then uh, celestial bodies, and then man. Well, that's sort of similar. Uh, the number seven is prominent, but in the Babylonian account, it's, it's purely the fact that there are seven tablets on which this story is told. It's not the basic seven that we have, six days of actual creation, and then the seventh day being the, uh, the Sabbath to memorialize it. So there are some similarities, but there's also some huge differences. For the main thing, one is... And all of these versions, we've got many versions of it, they are all very polytheistic with many gods. And the gods are not nice gods. They fight and they accuse one another and they uh, uh, do all sorts of things, including actually um, uh, cowering as the flood gets to be pretty violent. They're terrified of it. At the end, they make a sacrifice and uh, the, the gods crowd around like flies, it says in the account. They crowd around like flies because of the, the smell of the sacrifice. Very different from the story of a single god who is in control and creating beautiful things in a very orderly fashion. So one is sublime monotheism and the other is a very confusing and, and violent uh, kind of polytheism. There's also the difference of, uh, of matter. In Genesis chapter 1, God is in control. He creates matter. He organizes matter. And it is all subservient to him and his will. Whereas in the Babylonian accounts, the uh, gods are confused with matter. One is the sky god. Another is a river god and canal god. Another one is the god of wisdom and uh, Apsu and Tiamat are fresh water and salt water, and so on. So God is the creator who is in control, as distinct from these accounts, 
where the gods themselves are confused with matter. The Bible account is beautiful, simple, dignified, and it could not come from an origin such as this one. Now, I mentioned the flood, so we'll briefly comment on that. We don't have time to do much. The flood account in Genesis chapter 6 to chapter 9 is, again, orderly, organized, and, and easy to follow. But the Babylonians have their versions of it. There's the Gilgamesh epic, and Gilgamesh is a hero who comes to meet Utnapishtim, who is the Noah, who had survived a great flood. In the Babylonian account, it's Ziasudra, who is Noah. And there's a warning from the gods that a storm is coming, a great storm. They're told to build a boat, and they build a huge boat, and take in all sorts of supplies and animals and uh, gold and silver and so forth. Uh, as I said, the gods are frightened then because the storm is so bad, and then they accuse one another. It was your fault, it was your idea, and so on. However, you can't say that this is not somewhat similar to the Bible account, because when it gets to uh, uh, Utnapishtim, the flood is, near, is nearing its end, and he sends out three birds, a, a dove first, and then a swallow, and then a raven. In the Bible, it's a raven first, and then a dove three times. The second time, it brings back a leaf in its mouth. The third time, it, it doesn't actually come back. So there are similarities. How do we explain these similarities? Well, the common view is that that's simply where Moses got the idea. But I want to show you this little chart, and it's my attempt to make this uh, apparent how, how it works. They've got the original creation event, the actual event here at the top. And the blue line is the way that the story was passed down to Moses and preserved by him in the 15th century is when he wrote it. On the other hand, you've got all sorts of adaptations of a polytheistic nature to all the gods that had been invented as the years passed. And so you get the Atrahasis epic, you get the Gilgamesh epic, you get the uh, various other stories, and there's, there's other myths too, like the Adapa myth and so on. And they are using some of the original facts, but following all sorts of developments as their gods are invented and take place. And the, the common source of all these is the library of Ashurbanipal, which is in the middle of the 7th century BC. But it is a copy of earlier stories. Ashurbanipal didn't want to lose this information, so he had it copied. So the originals of the Ashurbanipal copies in his library go back to 1500 BC, 2000 BC, and even beyond. And it changes in different format with different uh, names and different characters along the way. So why not see the story that way? The, the true event, which is recorded by Moses, as he is guided by traditions that he's received, passed on very carefully from his ancestors, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 125. The son of Terah, that's Abraham, became the inheritor of this sacred trust. Perhaps it was mainly oral, 
but at least it was preserved by the ancestors of Moses and passed on eventually to him from Abraham. Also in great controversy in that introduction, page five, it's talking about the time of Moses and it says that Moses was the first one to write down scripture. Those who had been taught of God communicated their knowledge to others and it was handed down by father to son through successive generations. The preparation of the written word began in the time of Moses. So Moses is the first to write it down. At least most of it was not written before his time. But uh, the time when Moses wrote was after some of those stories written down in polytheistic contexts. But his is the true account. The others have been adapted, and not just these accounts. There are flood stories and creation stories in nearly every civilization on the face of the earth. There was one in Papua New Guinea, there's one in India, and, and so forth. I've got a whole book full of them somewhere. So uh, just before we conclude, uh, it's, it's quite reasonable then to see that the stories that have arisen did have some basis in fact, but then they were twisted and adapted to fit them to a polytheistic account. So uh, in the last part of the lesson, it talks about creation in the rest of Scripture. And that's quite intriguing to see. There's a list here of about a dozen passages of Scripture where it refers to the creation story or other events from the beginning of Genesis. Matthew 19, 4 and 5 talks about, from Jesus, talking about the creation of male and female in the beginning. In Mark 10, in the beginning of creation, there, there was marriage. In Luke 11, 50 and 51, since the beginning of the world, there have been, uh, these, these, these stories have been passed on. It mentions the slaying of Abel uh, by Cain. Uh, so many of these stories that, that are so basic to the rest of Scripture, which shows that the attitude to Scripture all along is that Moses got it right as he wrote these things down under the inspiration of God at the beginning. So we're glad that uh, these um, divergent Babylonian accounts have been found. They do give support to the, the biblical account, but they are not the origin of the biblical account. They are rather the way that that story was adapted uh, by so many polytheist, polytheistic societies. Also in the quarterly, it mentions something about the time involved because the patriarchal lists in Genesis chapters 5 and 11 do include how long each patriarch la, la, uh, lived, how long he lived after his first son was born, and so on. And it's been used as a way of, of doing a chronology of the earliest period of the earth's history, uh, before the flood and after the flood. However, there, there should be a little bit of a warning here. Uh, we're not sure that every name is mentioned. Although it gives the ages, it sounds like it is. But if you go to uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 35, there's an extra Canaan there in the list, in the period of the ten patriarchs after the flood. And we do know that in many other places there are names missed out in their genealogies. 
they seem to hit the highlights, give the main names, and it's clear from compare lists in Ezra and other places that there are times when names are missed out. So be cautious about pushing this too far to work out a chronology. But we're glad they wrote down what they did, how God led in preserving these stories for us and these records for us so that we can interpret Scripture accurately. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've preserved it miraculously over the thousands of years since it was first written. And we can have confidence as we read it today that it is your word and that your spirit will guide us as we request. Bless us as we continue to read your word in Jesus' name. This podcast is a service of the University Parkway Seventh-day Adventist Church in Pensacola, Florida. Our weekly podcasts are recorded every Saturday morning. Bible study begins at 9.30. The sermon begins at 11. You are invited to join us. We live stream the 11 o'clock service. You can catch that broadcast at our website, universitypkwy.org, or at Livestream. A library of previous messages is available on our YouTube channel and on our website. Thank you for listening.